And today's special guest is Luca Nets, founder, owner of Pudgy Penguins. What is going on, Luca? Hey, Lucas, how you doing? Good, my man. It's been a, it's been a while, but I'm glad to finally get you on the I'm finally get you on the show here, man. I'm I'm super interested. I've heard you speak in a lot of other spaces, and you came into a you, know, you started pretty humble, and then you came into the space and just dominated. I would love to hear the story from like soup to nuts, like your origin story, if you don't mind. If we start with that, and then from there we carry on to like pudgy and all that stuff, and like what you plan on doing in 2020, uh, 2023 and, and beyond, if that's cool. Yeah, it works with me. Uh, cool. I'll give I'll give the short esque version because I don't want to get too long winded. But my story is an interesting one. Uh, I grew up with a single mom. Uh, my mom and my brother, older brother. Uh, we grew up uh, all over the world, not by choice. Unfortunately, our situation growing up sucked. And so we were bouncing around house to house, guest bedroom to guest bedroom for about nine years, from about two to 11. Uh, did that until we finally settled down in Los Angeles. I went to Fairfax High School, dropped out uh, when I was 16. Thesis there was my mom was still struggling to pay the bills and I was old enough to get a job and help uh, provide, and help kind of alleviate that pressure. And so I started throwing underground rap shows uh, in LA. That was actually really interesting. I did that for about six months. And then I realized the money that I was making uh, was not as much money as I thought. And then I felt like getting a job would probably be a better use of my time and resources. I took 100 resumes, printed them out, started handing them. Uh, the only way I knew how, let's see how I, how you got a job back then. And so I went uh, up and down Tech Row in Santa Monica and ended up handing my resume to a startup at the time called Ring Doorbell. And so I was one of their hey, first employees. no way. You, Ring? For real? Yeah, dude. When, I when, was, when it was uh, called Doorbot or when it would actually change his name to Ring? Uh, it was still Doorbot. Oh, okay, cool. I, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I know the founder. Um, what's his name? I can't remember his name. Jamie. Right Jamie, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, I... I uh, I had him at a, I did an event in 2014 called disrupt LA, the mm -hmm. tech crunch version just for LA. So pretty cool. He was one of the speakers on one of our panels. Yeah. What a, what a great guy. Actually, I don't know if you'd remember me, but I tried to cultivate a relationship. So I helped move his, I helped move his house. He was like asking if anybody wanted extra money. So he was just somebody that I really looked up to. And I think up until that point, I wanted to make money. I think, Everybody wants to make money and be financially independent and financially free. But I think my experience at Ring gave me the burning desire to want to build a big company. I was never looking at things from the lens of building companies. I was really looking at things from the lens of making money. Right. And I, I watched them go from 10 employees to 600 by the time I left uh, and kind of just saw that thing go from zero to 100. And uh, I wanted that. I wanted that journey. I mean, the roller coaster ride, even from somebody who wasn't involved in the high level conversations. I mean, I've seen him punch holes in walls and I've also seen him take huge eight figure PO wins. So just like a beautiful experience to like just be on the ground level and watch that. And I'm an observer and a listener. It's probably one of my better qualities. And so I absorbed as much as I could during that experience. And when I was 18, I decided to start my first direct-to-consumer business, uh, selling jewelry online. Fortunately for me, I found product market fit pretty much a month into the business, and it ended up doing you know $5 million its first year and 15 its second. And 
ever since then, I've just been in the business of direct consumer and consumer product goods. It's really my core competency and what I've really excelled in. And so most recent business being Gel Blaster, which is that little water Orbeez gun. And then all the while, I've just been a collector of things. Like I, I love stuff. I love cool stuff. And so I've had that bug pretty much since as far as I can remember, but I never really had the financial capabilities to kind of feed that desire. And so the second I got money, you know, fine art, watches, sneakers, sports cards, whatever I could get my hands on, I tried to collect. And so when NFTs came around, I was like, yeah, this is just the best version of collecting. And so all of the pros, none of the cons, I dove right in and got a couple one of one pieces, was kind of dabbling in the fine art space. And then when PFPs came around, I said, oh, that makes total sense to me as well. And uh, was looking for my first PFP and I wanted a universal one, one that everyone could identify with because I thought that yielded the highest upside. I still do. And um, I found Pudgy Penguins and it was love at first sight. So I bought a bunch of Pudgies, was fortunate enough to be caught in that scenario where I bought something and kind of took a risk and it like paid off extremely well. I was buying Pudgies when they were a hundred bucks, 80 bucks. Wow. Uh, And you know, you kind of get that bug when you like make a conviction bet on something and then it works like, you know, at hundred X's and you're like, Oh my God. And and Pudgy was a unique scenario because it like a hundred X, like in a matter of like a week, week and a half. And so like quite literally after it took, it took two weeks for me to just be like, Oh my God, this is not only one of the greatest investments I've ever made, but like, I, I I love this space. This is like what I want to spend all my free time doing. And so for nine months before we bought Pudgy, I was just trading the heck out of these NFTs, dude. And um, I was really successful doing it. And I think that gave gave me an edge that I have today, which is I think I have a really good finger on the pulse as to what people want and where people have gone wrong, where people have gone right. Per my experience being a trader, I really attribute from from an executive team side, I think there's a lot of variables that I think have factored into the success of Pudgy. But for me, from an executive side, the fact that I was such an elite NFT trader, I thought to myself, well, you know, I I know exactly what they want on the other side of it, right? Like I know what the collector and the trader wants to see. And I think that's boded really well for us up until this point. So that's the short version of the story. Trust me, the story gets way longer, but I, I yeah. like long story. I'm a big fan of like long stories. Um, and I know you don't have a lot of time, but I just wanted to say like, when I've heard you talk in other spaces, just the struggle you got through like when you're younger, like teenage years and, and even younger than that. And then you like a lot of people wouldn't have taken that path you took. They would have gone down like the easy path. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, I'm going to go do something that's going to get me money fast and it might not be legal. So I'm going to go and but I'm going to go and do it. Cause it just, you know, like it's been a struggle, you know, and you guys moving around a lot. Like I, I can relate a, a little bit to that too. I went to three different, three different high schools. So I definitely know how that feels as well. So that's why I was like, man, you got a really, a story that really resonates like of struggle. And then out of the struggle comes this success. You know what I mean? Like you've found great. Like you said, you found product market fit with like a CPG company. Um, I'm assuming you've done it a couple of times with some consumer package goods. Yeah. Yeah, I'm That's, probably uh, four for five. 
That's that's pretty amazing to just be one down from uh, out of five. That's pretty cool. So what what I I get that you were into you know trading NFTs and during the bull like everybody was a genius, right? Everybody could like we all yeah. felt like we were geniuses. Like <laughs> nine out of ten would like five, three, five, ten x. You know what I mean? Like it was that it was just there and it was happening. Do you think? Uh, did you take some? Did you? Is that how you like? basically took over pudgy penguins. Like, can you tell the story about like how that came about too, where you were this elite NFT trader, but then you're like, Hey, I really like pudgies. And now I, I know I'm going to be like the, I want to be the owner of it. Where did that cross that switch turn in your, in your head? Yeah. So it was, you know, I'd been trading NFTs. Pudgy penguins was my first. I fell in love with the brand. I always saw the potential. I, I, I immediately knew, I mean, there's text messages in certain group chats where I'm just like telling the group chat, I'm like, this is it. Like before it was ever a thing. And I felt like just knowing what I know about brands and Gel Blaster kind of being 2021's toy of the year, you know, I opened myself up to this world of like toys and IP and whoa, like what a, what a business that is, right? Like that is just such an, it's a business that I think a lot of people steer away from because it seems like it's already monopolized, which it is. Uh, but it's something that I just wasn't really conscious of. And so understanding what I knew coming off of just that world of toys and IP, I just immediately saw the vision for Pudgy Penguins the second I bought it. Now, unfortunately, the founders were kind of first-time entrepreneurs. They really hadn't had experience building businesses or building companies before. You know, Granted, their first successful business turns out to be an industry that I believe is the most difficult. And so... They kind of just missed the mark every step of the way. I was pretty frustrated from a collector's standpoint. Uh, it was something that I was always the most hopeful for. Like I just had so much hope in the Pudgy Penguins brand that as I saw them kind of go down the path that they were going, I was getting really frustrated. And then, you know, I had no intention to really buy it until one day I wake up scrolling through crypto Twitter and I just see a bunch of people talking about it. Uh, talking about Pudgy, talking about buying Pudgy, talking about somebody taking over Pudgy. And I really didn't think too much of it. Um, a couple days later, I go on this trip to Sedona. Um, I don't really take vacations, nor do I really take like spiritual retreats. <laughs> I kind of wanted to align myself. I wanted to just kind of decompress. You know, Gel Blaster was taking off. It, at this point, Gel Blaster kind of hit that parabolic curve. Something you know, something there. I, I don't know what it was. I just didn't feel fulfilled the way that I thought it would. Like, I don't, I can't explain it, but it also didn't really seem challenging. It also felt really easy. I mean, the product was so good that I just did what I did and the thing just blew up. And so it almost felt like, wow, we had just built a nine figure a year business in 12 months. You know, like this is, is this it? Like, where else are we going to go? And <laughs> like, you know, it's, they, your, it's your sense of purpose almost. You're like, wow. So I just accomplished the thing I wanted to accomplish. Now what? Right? You were just like looking for the what? Like, what's next? Because that was easier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, so. and and they were, you know, Gel Blaster. Most people don't know this, but it's actually a tech company. I know it sounds like really weird to say, uh, but they started like building out AR and like virtual experiences. I mean, this stuff is still just takes a long time to develop, but that's kind of where they see the future. Right. And it just like, I, my core competency isn't there. It seemed like 
the path to where I wanted to take it was still a couple of years away again, but neither here nor there, just something in my gut just wasn't fulfilled. I don't know what it was. And then I leave Sedona. I have an epiphany. I'm watching this whole like pudgy penguin scenario kind of unfold. And something in my gut tells me like, look, Luca, everything you've done up until this point has led you to these pudgy penguins. And so I I actually can't explain it. Um, So I'm not going to try to, but I I just trusted my gut. I've had a a couple gut instincts in my professional career and I neglected them because I was comfortable and I was in a scenario that was really good. And in hindsight, I had missed on what what ended up being golden opportunities. And so this was the third time in which my gut was just telling me something in my stomach, which is like, dude, this is, this is it, do it. And I knew gel blasters at a place that it was almost self-sustaining. It was like, now it was just about partnerships and the right licensing deals. And, you know, it wasn't about making the product viral. The product was already viral. And it's one of those products where the UGC is so good and so heavy that it just like, once you've started the cannon, it just takes And so I knew that if I stepped down from that, it actually wouldn't be effective in a negative manner. That was really key because we had put so much time and energy into that, that like I was not going to step away from, you know, such a successful business if I thought that me stepping away would harm it. Right. And so I, I just made the decision. I made a tweet after consulting some of my friends. We had like this little group chat of like a bunch of NFT traders. And it's like, you guys think this is a good idea? Uh, does anybody, you know, kind of want to be a support system here? I kind of filtered through the group, put a couple people uh, on the deal with me, and we basically bought this thing. And so the process was pretty uh, strenuous, to say the least. I actually, I, I mentioned this in the space earlier, I didn't think the deal would go through. It wasn't until the day the deal went through did I think the deal was going to go through. So I'd conceptualized, I'd formulated, you know, kind of the overarching vision, which was kind of the vision since day one, the reason why I even bought a pudgy penguin. And then, um, and then we took this thing over. And then unfortunately, literally the day we bought it was the day the market went down only. And, uh, it's been a grind ever since, but it's been the most rewarding and fulfilling, uh, business I've ever been a part of. And I've evolved here at a rate that, I have never evolved over the last six years doing consumer product and direct consumer. And, and and so like I've already accomplished, you know, personally some of the personal developments that I've wanted to accomplish. And I'm just so excited to take this thing even further. I mean, we haven't even really gotten started yet. So, um, that, that's, that's kind of how it shook out. And, uh, that's a good story. So my question to you is like, obviously you were thinking CPG, you got in the NFTs, you basically were a great trader. You then decided that, you know, getting some IP behind you in, and building a brand is really the most valuable asset you can actually bring to the table. And that's where you wanted to be. And it made you less comfortable, of course, because you were already comfort. You had a lot of comfort in your CPG ability. So that's an interesting story. And then you, and then you made yourself less comfortable once you went and acquired, obviously you, you went in with some, it sounded like some partners into um, Pudgy. So my question to you is how did the community, how was the community before and how was the community like right after you and they, everybody, you know, you were able to announce that you were taking over the project? Yeah, I think before they were frustrated and rightfully so I was. 
And so, you know, another reason why I bought this thing is because I also believed, you know, beyond pudgy penguins, I unequivocally believed that Web3 was the future. And with that belief, I was honestly not only just frustrated with the pudgy penguins team, to be frank, I was frustrated with pretty much everyone in the space because people had raised so much money from their community and so much money from venture and their output and their vision was so lame <laughs> that I just thought to myself, like, I can come in here and set a bar that hasn't been set yet. And so just wanted to kind of touch on that point because you kind of had mentioned it before. But when I took over or before I took over, the community was frustrated, like right. a majority of NFT projects. Um, I think if price is not going up and you kind of unveil the veil, you'll see that output and progress is really low across the board in this space. And so they were frustrated. You know, half of the, the community was really split. Half of them wanted me, half of them didn't. You know, granted, they weren't familiar with who I was. Right. And unfortunately, it wasn't a democratic process. I wish it was. I wish I could have gone out there and campaigned, maybe saved myself some money. But uh, <laughs> that wasn't the case. And, um, you know, I had to earn their trust. And, like, that's fair. That's reasonable. I think everything in life, you know, my, one of my greatest pieces of advice, and this is somebody who grew, spent a majority of my professional career in Los Angeles, I don't trust anyone because everyone's a liar, right? And so, like, for me, like, I understand the lack of trust that some of the community members had for me because it's like, prove yourself, right? Like, show me, put numbers on the board. And so the other half was just excited to see somebody new because anything was better than what the previous team was doing. Right. right? And so anybody, you know, anybody who's willing to put millions of dollars to buy something like that was almost like a, from a trading standpoint, like that's a, that's a pretty good sign because it's like, you're putting your money where your mouth is and you have to like recoup, right? Like nobody's putting that type of money up for something like this without the intention of recouping and, how do you recoup is by building something special. Like you're not going to recoup by not doing a good job. And so I think the best thing that I ever did, and I mentioned this again in the earlier space, but I went on a one week sprint where the moment we bought it, I basically said, Hey, I want to do a couple hours every night and I want to talk to you guys. And I want to hear what you love about the project, what you don't love about the project, what you've always seen for the future of the project. Uh, and what are the current expectations that have been set? Because I wanted to make sure that I fulfilled current expectations. I think it's really screwed up if somebody bought something under X expectation and they got something else. So I also wanted to understand the full scope of the expectation because a lot of things were loose. There wasn't a consolidated place where like, it was very clear with the roadmap and what the expectation was. And so I did that for a week. And thank God that I did because my angle and my positioning and some of the decisions that I was on the verge of making, I completely did a 360. I was like, this is not what the community wants. And though I had plans to do X, Y, and Z, my plans went from X, Y, and Z to A, B, C, D, right? And so like a complete new outlook that I think you can only kind of get by listening. And ever since then, I think also, and this is me speaking from an outsider looking in, I actually don't know if this is the case, but I think for the community that participated in that exercise, they saw that and I think I earned trust on that sprint. 
right? Like I think they saw that I was here and I gave a shit and that this was my all. They didn't really understand what I, they, obviously I paid for it, but I don't think they really understood my sacrifice. Like I stepped down from Gel Blaster to do this, which is an insanely valuable company. And so once I kind of did that, I, I, I think I, they knew that I was here to win and that I also listened more importantly, right? Like I think it's less about saying you want to win because I think anybody can come up here and say, hey, we want to win. I think everyone wants to win. But I think more importantly, I listened and I took their feedback and I've adjusted and I continue to, right? It's a constant, you know, what a fascinating business because you have to flow like water and you have to be able to pivot and communicate those pivots. It, it's, it's really interesting, but I think I kind of set the bar there that I'm, I'm here to communicate and I'm here to build something that everybody wants. And I have a core competency. Our team has a core competency. We know where to take it because we think that part of our vision is in the best interest of everyone. We translated that. We were all aligned. And then we kind of pressed play. And so that, I think, to me, if you were to ask me, like, what do you think was the moment that things started to change a little bit? Yeah. I think it was that one-week sprint, right? Like, I think they, find, they, they, they saw that and knew that I wasn't just here to dictate, you know, what I felt like was going to go on. And they were just along for the ride. Like, this was our ride. This was our boat. This was our mission. This is our vision. And though not every single idea can be factored in, and again, there's, you know, I say this as if I can't improve, but I can even improve my communication today. Like I'll catch myself not communicating as much as I want to, but I think at its core, the principle of what we're trying to accomplish here is how do we build the world's first great IP brand, but how do you do that with a Web3 community, which is a hive mind of people and a hive mind of brains and ideas and feedback. And that's the superpower. Right? Like I, I actually didn't understand that until I was a founder. But the superpower of Web3 is you have all of these brilliant, savvy minds that can contribute and ideate quicker than one or two or three or four or five minds can do uh, in a silo. And so that was really fascinating to me. I kind of got a groove. Unfortunately, we just got hammered with market conditions and it was kind of a brutal grind up. But it was... Uh, it's been an interesting experience to say the least, but I think that was the turning point. Yeah. I mean, what you did too, like listening to the community, I mean, people just 99% of people just want to be heard whether or not you like pull the trigger on their ideas. They just want to be heard and you're not, and you, it sounds like you listen to listen rather than listen to respond. And I think that's some of the most powerful things you can do because again, the needs of the community outweigh the needs of the one. And, you know, you coming in as a CEO, just like dictating, that would have been like, these are what I need and you guys get on board or don't. Instead, you listened. And I think that's actually a gift to give someone in this space right now. If you're listening right now to what Luca just said, super powerful, listen to your community. That doesn't mean you have to pull the trigger on everything they say, but at least listen and try to understand why they're saying it and like, let them be heard and like make them feel like they've been heard. And then explain why you might go in a different direction and you might, and you might go in their direction. It's actually a really smart move. Go ahead, Luca. And you see this all the time. I think one of the biggest things that you see in this space, you know, I think there's, there's three variables to me that I think crush an NFT project. One continuous minting, which is diluting the digital ecosystem. The digital ecosystem has to be scarce, right? Or you have to have overflowing inbounds to warrant another mint. 
That's one I think that crushes people. The second one is making products that your community doesn't want. And how are you going to know if your community wants or doesn't want something if you're not communicating to them and not listening to them? Like that is so important because you see so many great products being shipped. And I know these guys are putting months and months and hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars into some of these initiatives and some of these, these toolings and infrastructure and things that they're, you know, games and things that they're building for their group just for it to completely flop and actually crush the whole project. Because that was like the big moment and the big moment was a disappointment. Right. And now everybody's like pissed, you know, and it, it all would have been solved if that person would have just communicated. Because what happened was it was, you know, these people are coming up with these ideas and I know it because we do it all the time at Pudgy. But it's like three or four or five of us are on a call. We're ideating. We're going back and forth. And we think of something genius or something that we think is genius. And the difference between our team and a majority of the spaces team is they will go and just ship and make it and like build up the big surprise. And then I'll go into our inner igloos and be like, hey, like I won't give it away, but I'll kind of like touch on like points about it. And I can really gauge if there's interest or not, right? And so, like, building things that people want is important. But how are you going to know what people want if you're not talking to them, if you're not listening? You know, it's crazy because my biggest Achilles heel in life up until maybe two years ago was communication. My personal relationships sucked because of my communication. My intimate relationships sucked because of my communication. My businesses still thrived, but it thrived because I was good at something, which was awareness. Right? I didn't thrive because I was a good communicator. If anything, I think there's been certain businesses that if I communicated better, you know, I might not be here today. They might be, you know, they might have been the ones. Right. And so, like, communication is key for life. And, and a lot of people struggle with it. A lot of people struggle with confrontation. They struggle with communication. It, like, gives anxiety. It's like a mental block. Something there. It's like a fascinating thing to, like, study or just observe. But... In Web3, I mean, it's very evident. Unless you caught lightning in a bottle during the bull market and set and planted your foot in the ground, what's winning in the bear market? I mean, it's so obvious. It's who's communicating and who's standing up and who's around and who's spreading the vision, right? Like, those are the people who are winning right now. And I think as the space evolves, those are the people that are going to continue to win. It all comes back to one crucial point, which is communication. And a majority of projects fail either because of dilution, which is probably the biggest reason for failure. People just get greedy. They've never made millions of dollars in their life. And so this is their time to cash out and set themselves up. Right. And the second one is they just have, they think it's their show. Like they think this is like web two, you know, like I actually believe web two businesses are essential for web three to thrive. I think it's the web two mindset that is the Achilles heel. And so, so many people just have a web two mindset where a web two mindset is you build with your group. you got three, four, five people that is like in your C-level team or that your founders or like your core employees. And you guys ideate and you ship and you break and you ideate and you ship and you break and you're just siloed. You're just head down shipping and breaking and like testing and A-B splits, like the whole nine. And then in web three, you actually can't do that. Like you have to be ultra communicative because if you ship something that people don't like, you're screwed. 
like you only have so many chances. I mean, you really have like, I think three lives. Like I think you can screw up once they can forgive and forget maybe twice. But I think if you screw up three times, it's like, what are we holding for just for you to screw up again? Right. And so communication. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that if it, if this was not a retail market and these in the, everybody here investing or like venture capitalists, they'd give you more than three chances to like iterate and win. You know what I mean? Like they don't just go, okay, third chance you're done, buddy. Um, you know, usually it's like, okay, let's keep iterating until we get it right. And then you iterate faster when it's like institutional money, but when it's retail, there's no question about it. People want answers today. Like if you talk about something today, they want answers to buy like tonight or by tomorrow at the latest. So that's the tough part. And you're right. Communication is like literally the, the one of the most important things I would say, if not the most important thing in one of these projects and building and especially building community, if you communicate and like, and you're building in public, especially building in public, like they're, they get used to a certain cadence with you. And I think, you know, when you're doing this cadence, well, you're sharing and then iterating and sharing and iterating. And you're like, okay, transparency, here's what we're doing. And you know what I mean? You just keep building in public and then there's, there might be some changes that happen down the, down the road. But this is like super important to get. Everybody has to understand that communication to your community is like one of the most critical paths you can actually have in this space. And you can never really over communicate, I guess you could say, but you know, just know that there's, there, there is definitely a level of communication and there's also a level of like how much you give of yourself. Eventually you cannot give as much as you want to. Um, there is a, there is a balance though. Yeah. And so one thing that I've done is certain things I've caught myself actually over communicating because it quite literally is this really thin line because you want to keep things fun and mysterious and you want to have that excitement and that effect. And you also don't really want to set expectations because expectations lead to resentment, right? Like you well, obviously, you know, not every expectation, but you want to, you want to play your cards, right? You want to be really methodical and calculated in how you approach this. Right. And, you know, one thing that I started to do, especially last month in December, when I did like a whole space as an interview spree, I was just talking so much that I was letting things slip. And, you know, you want to really just talk to them about, you almost want to like talk in a general manner because like you want to keep it fun. Like there's something about like, again, putting myself in the shoes of a trader. There's something fun about the speculation. There's something fun about like, what's next? What are they doing? Like you want to leave hints. You want them to think, but like you want to keep it fun because again, this is an attention business, the likes of which I've never seen. And you can't keep attention if everyone knows what's coming, right? So it actually is really fascinating because it's a master class in communication because you want to be clear and you want to be transparent. But ideas change too. So what you don't want to do is like every other week saying, hey, I scratched that idea. Sorry for getting you guys excited. We moved and we pivoted. It's a balance that I honestly haven't mastered yet. uh, But it's something I'm very conscious of and I'm trying to master. Like, how can you, you know, really get a, a very pertinent and real feedback loop? But how do you do it without giving too much away, right? Because if you give too much away, then everybody knows what's coming and it's not that exciting. It's not that fun, right? And so this is what I'm trying to figure out right now. But I actually do believe you can over-communicate. Uh, I, I think too much transparency removes a little bit of the fun. 
And so I'm just now finding this balance because I found myself just in that sprint of just like eight hours a day talking for 30 days straight that I would, um, and I just slipped and I was like, damn, uh, you know, some people have an idea as to what's coming and I'm kind of upset because I want to keep things fun and I want to keep things exciting. But that's how you kind of, you know, there's, there's a balance to it, but I just wanted to bring that up. No, you're right. I mean, it's like a football game, right? You're all watching football. You all, I mean, if you already know who's going to win the game, how much of that excitement goes away? You know what I mean? Imagine if you absolutely knew some team was going to win the game. It would not even be close to exciting. You wouldn't be speculating. You wouldn't be, you know, group thinking about it. You wouldn't be playing. You wouldn't be building a community together, which is basically shared experiences over the, over the internet. Right. And that's what this is. You know, we have event, we have like, literally we have funds involved. We have like. PFPs involved, which are the jerseys of the team, right? And then we're, we're, we're playing against other teams and we're playing against the market in theory. So like pudgies go up, you know, the floor price goes up a little bit because some, some of the actions you take, you know, and I agree, you could absolutely over communicate and like over promise and under deliver. And that's scary in this space because what you should be doing is obviously the, the inverse, which is under promise and over deliver. So under promising means also under communicating in some cases to keep that mystery, and that interest around it. So I agree. There's a little bit of a masterclass with Yuga. I mean, Yuga hasn't been the best in communicating. Not not hating on Yuga. I'm just saying like they're good at like creating hype. And I think if you watch how they create hype, when things start to slip and people stop talking about it, they drop something new. And it's an interesting way of doing business where it keeps that excitement, but they don't really answer the community too much. Although the Ape Council was a step towards that where there's now like people out in the community listening. And if there's anything that needs to come up or re brought up to the, you know, basically the executive team, they bring it to the executive team and say, here's what we've heard. And those are the, those, they have those, you know, obviously community, you know, uh, leaders out there and they're, they're basically siphoning information from this community, from Twitter spaces, from Twitter itself, from discords, and then transferring over saying, Hey, you know what? 90%, I've seen like 80 or 90% of people talking about this. We should probably address it or we should probably drop this or we should probably probably do something like that. So there's something there. So again, you're, you're definitely as like touted as one of the best founders in the space, best owners in the space of an NFT project. So do you think that is all to do with your communication skills or your possible, is it possible that you, your over communication in the first 30 days of like eight hours a day, you were saying like, I actually think that was a good thing. You might've over communicated in some cases, but they saw you were there for pure intentions you know what I mean? Like they saw you were really trying and that's like proof that you're showing up every day. You might not be perfect at it, but you know, if you keep showing up to the baseball field, you're eventually going to hit a baseball. You know what I mean? Like you keep showing up to the basketball court, you're eventually going to be able to, you know, hit that three pointer. And that's what this is, right? You keep showing up, especially you, who's the owner of the project. Like you're not, not hardly anybody that's an owner of a project is this accessible to the, you know, to their community. So I'm going to give you, you know, obviously uh, flowers to that one for sure. My man, like crazy, crazy communicative and also crazy available to the community. And obviously, you know, you bought a good project. The IP is very appealing to a lot of people. This project's going to go well. Like when you decide to do something with the IP, I think, uh, you know, whether it's games or, or, or uh, toys or whatever you're going to do, apparel-wise, whatever you're going to do, uh, cartoons possibly, TV shows, movies, who knows what you can make out of this. There's so many things. So 
what is there anything you can tell us in 2023 that might be coming up for like pudgy that you know maybe someone might want like hear about and it could even be like a little tease it doesn't have to be a complete like message <laughs> yeah no and you know to your earlier point if if you're going to pick between over communicating and under communicating you pick over communicating any yeah. day of the week 100 percent. Yep. <laughs> so true. there's there's not even like you you might as well just lay out all your cards and over communicate so i'll try not to over communicate here but you know, at, at its stance, when we took over Pudgy, there was a learning curve. The first couple months, I wasn't working on the business. I was working in the business. Our whole focus was standing up a real company, one that was set to scale. Because I didn't buy a company. I bought assets, really. I mean, there was no, there was no infrastructure. There was no KPIs, no OKRs, no SOPs. There was no employee handbooks. There was no insurance. There was nothing. It was just like it was a contract address and some social logins. And so the first couple months, I was focusing in the business, standing it up. We bought it. It's been nine months since we bought it. So I think the, you know, the last six months, I've been actually just like understanding the industry, what it is to kind of lead the charge. And there was a learning curve. And there's still a curve. Like I'm still not the most elite founder in this space that I know I can be. But like I have a really, really good finger on the pulse now. And... We also came into this business convinced that we were going to build a real business out of this. And what I mean by that is a business that's not dependent on royalties and mints, because I think any business is dependent on royalties and mints is destined to servitude and destined to fail, truthfully. And so I'd also been developing an extensive product line with our collectibles and our toys by nature of just producing physical products, at least toys and collectibles. They take time. And so we're finally on the verge of like releasing that stuff and me doing what I do best, which is blow up consumer products. Like nobody knows, like, and I just say this objectively, but I'm so confident in my playbook. I'm so confident in my formula. I'm so confident in just like what I know how to do. Like this year is going to be explosive for us. And so, you know, our products ship, like I'll be able to do what I do on the physical product side. We have three tech initiatives that I think are going to change just the industry in general. I don't think people even think that we're thinking of this type of stuff, but our CTO, I think, is one of the most elite in the space. Uh, absolute big brain with big brain ideas. We have a, you know, we call it the Penguineering team, engineers and devs that we've hired from the community beyond bright. Uh, and we've got some just things that I think nobody's really expecting from us. I think people... I don't know what people are expecting, truthfully, honestly, uh, that are outside of the community. I know that the community knows what to expect, but I, I'm so excited because I think this is the year, or I don't think like this is the year that we put our flag on the ground. And I like, I will know after this year how confident I am in really realizing the goal, which is being the face of NFTs and being number one. Like this year will dictate that. And so I'm laying all my cards on the line. Like this is, there's, there's no excuses for this year. And so this year, our physical products ship, our tech initiatives ship, we're going to blow the roof off of this thing on a marketing perspective. The number is going to get huge. And I'm just going to show the world, like, this is why Pudgy is the best. This is why we're going to win. And I'm not going to use opinion to make that argument. I'm going to use data. And so that's really key to me because like, I almost don't like being braggadocious about things if there isn't really 
real data points to back it up. And I'm going to make it unequivocally clear that January of 2024, the data will be so evident that if you're not a part of the pudgy penguin ecosystem, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and that, and, and then, but that's just like how I, that's just the mindset I've got to be in. Right. And yeah, no, I agree, man. Like there's no question about it. You have to, again, anybody that's leading a project without data is like, that's insane to me. I'm a data first person also. So it's like, what are your KPIs? You know what I mean? Like what's, what's your literally, what are your metrics of success? And if I hear someone go, uh, like instantly it's a problem for me. Cause it's like, wait, you have no goals. Like analytically speaking, if you have no goals, you actually have no goals. You cannot really do much if you have no analytics to back it up with, like, like literally analytic goals to back it up with. If you don't go, Hey, that we are at, we're at this number and we want to be at this number. This is the, this is the growth rate over the next like six, 12 months that we expect. If you don't have those numbers, everybody, it's so critical to have analytics backing up everything you do. And then if someone has an argument with you, exactly what Luca just said, the data speaks for itself. You cannot argue with objective facts like data, right? You know, two plus two is always going to be four in this case. So if you want to argue with like results and it's data, you're just better off like not arguing at all. So mad respect to the the data first mentality, Luca. Like that is brilliant. And I've heard absolutely zero people talk about it. Analytics is like everything. It's because you're, I think it's because of your CPG background that you realize like, what is the ROI for every dollar I spend? Like, what do I get back, you know, in terms of product sales? And then what's your net, what's your gross revenue? What's your net revenue? Like, what's all that? And then how much is the community scaling? Let's look at the numbers. We don't know how long are people spending on, you know, before they, you know, maybe sell a pudgy, you know, like what's the lifetime value of someone owning a pudgy? How long does that last before they decide to sell it? You know, there's all these numbers that people really don't think about when they're doing projects and it like literally conquers all of your concerns. Like analytics puts a lot of it to sleep. If you can like put some numbers against something and like say, hey, here's what we're aiming at. It gives everybody confidence, the founder, the team, and the community itself. And you know that you're not over-promising and under, under-delivering, right? It's a joy to be on this space with you today, Lucas, because <laughs> you're, the, you're the only person I've spoken to in this space. I mean, again, comes from our backgrounds. This is just how we process information. Yeah. 100%. I mean, we, we, we have things like I, it's, it's not too much TMI, but this is like a funny one just on the analytics. Uh, like we have a full like analytical table on, so we, you know, one of the things that I've been working on is how do I manufacture volume? Like, okay, if one of my core products is the NFT, how do I create volume? Right. Because volume is important. If I'm going to like the lat, what you see consistently is just people pushing initiatives and not creating volume. So the, the question is, is if you roll things out, how do you create volume? So it's meaningful. And so we've made a lot of progress here, but the progress that we've made has been because of the data. <laughs> I mean, the data tells you everything. It's, it's so much so, and you'll really like this one, Lucas. Yeah. Uh, but I was, I was going through a really tough time. And uh, the time was we, we bought Pudgy. It went from like one ETH to four ETH and then was down only while the market was bleeding. And I was just beginning to ship a couple of things. We had launched Pudgy Media. We, you know, we like had you know, turned around the, the socials really fast. Things were growing. We were putting a lot of effort and it wasn't really translating into the floor price. I was getting really upset. And one of our advisors were thankful enough to, again, this is one of the beauties of the Pudgy Penguin community, but 
the CEO of Nansen is like a huge pudgy penguin holder, realized I had to have this guy on my advisory board because he just knows things that I don't. You know, in my time of peril, I just reached out to him and I said, hey, like, what's your advice here? Because this thing's not working the way that I want it to. I know the market is completely tanking. and I know everybody's tanking, but still, like, I want people to pay attention. Why aren't they? Or why does it look as bad as it does? And so we went into the back end of the analytics and he said, well, look, Luca, by the data is telling us that, you know, 99% of the holders are holding and they're buying more. And the reason why your floor price is bring, being crushed is because there's three guys. And these three guys, I won't mention their names, but they each had like 50 to 100 penguins each. And they were just flooring them. Every time we'd get a little bit of progress, they'd floor it. And so like I was going through this like two months of pain and despair and just like upset why people weren't realizing, you know, or, or weren't paying attention or giving us the credit that I felt like we deserved. When in reality, they were. It was just, I was so focused on the floor price at the time that it was really just three people like bringing the whole thing down. Right. And it they didn't translate the majority of the sentiment. 99% of the sentiment was positive. They loved what we were doing. But it was just three super whales that just wanted out. And it that's that's how it like it was just like fascinating. I like <laughs> It was literally the day after that call, because this is an emotional game, truthfully. Like this 100%, 100%. is this is all an emotional game. Yep. I mean, business and life is an emotional game, but this one specifically, I mean, he, I have an interview coming out with a guy named Mark that I think everybody should watch because I dive into this big time. But it's a um, it's an emotional game to say the least. And so the second that I I realized that like, oh shit everyone's believing. It's just like these three dudes, these three non-believers who just happen to have a ton of penguins who are like bringing us down. I just like the energy came into my chest that next morning in a way that I had never felt since I took over the business. And I was like, I'm just going to get these guys out and I'm just going to grind this thing and make it so undeniable. And I'm going to make them rue the day that they freaking floored these things at one and one and a half ETH. And I just grinded my tail off. I went on a sprint that was just like, I'm going to roll it out. I, I was doing, I was doing like, I was really timid with my announcements because I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what my thought process was, but I just kicked it into gear. I realized that everybody was behind me. The data was showing that people were supporting me. Like the reason why it hadn't translated yet was just because of three bad apples. And I just kicked it into gear and then the rest is history. Uh, not to say that I wasn't already into gear, but like just talking from a human perspective, like you do feel down in this business. Oh, like there no are dates, no like doubt. I can give you an even more real scenario, but we'll, we'll just bring it up. Like, you know, Penguins had to run to seven ETH and we just, we went back down to five and a half and same thing. I was like, damn, I was like, we, you know, we had momentum. What happened? Well, was one guy sold 150 penguins or a hundred penguins, Right. That's great. I actually like that. That's a positive because that means like more distribution. It's better for the ecosystem. Sure. But the, the data is key. Like if I didn't know that, I'd be like, oh shit, here we go again. Like, what did I do? Did I say something on a space? I mean, these are just, I'm just being really transparent in how we think, like, at least how I think when certain things happen. I mean, I'm an emotional human being. We all are, right? you know, and it's my superpower, but it can also be a weakness in moments. But the data circumvents that being a weakness because the data will tell you everything. Absolutely. Uh, I love that you just said that too. 
you were able to like alleviate stress because you looked at the data and you like, you knew what was going on. The data pointed the way and data always points the way you just have to learn how to read it and let it point the way for you. And, uh, there's no question. I have some stories about that too, where I was like, I've seen like something go on in a business that I was like operating a, a, seg- a segment of, and people would be like, what's going on? What's going on? Freaking out. And I would just look at the numbers, the raw data, not even in a table format. I could just tell like what was going on. And they were like, wait, how do you even know that? You just looked at the numbers for like five seconds. I'm like, well, I've been doing this for a really long time. So like I can just look at raw data and understand what's going on. And you know, it turns out I was right because guess what? The data is not usually wrong. And, um, don't get me wrong. Data can be wrong. Everybody shit in shit out is what they say. Like if you don't set up the data and tracking systems correctly, you won't be able to like get a good read on data. But if you have it set up correctly and you test it and you realize like all that data you're pulling is actually giving you accurate stuff, like you can make great decisions. And I'm talking, you can make leaps and bounds. Exactly what Luca just said. You can have leaps and bounds like of like change and positivity happen to something like fill in the blank product or project or anything. As long as you're looking at the data, I'm going to, you mind if I go to the few questions here, Luca, I see Nick Smalls has got his hands up real quick. Nick, go ahead. No, go ahead, buddy. Hey, thanks for bringing me up here, Lucas. Um, Luca, I've talked to you a couple of times and Lucas, I obviously met you in real life and that was a real pleasure. Um, I was wondering for you, Luca, like a big question I had, and I was going to ask this the other night when I was on Spaces with you. Do you think anybody can be a founder? Like, do you have to have a specific background in entrepreneurship or whatever to have a background or to, to be a founder? Or can really anyone with a drive be a successful NFT founder, in your opinion? So I think anyone with a drive can be a successful founder in life, right? Do I think, and, and to be frank, Drive is the X factor, right? If you have drive, you can learn and accomplish anything. So by technicality, yes, I think if you have enough drive, you can be a successful NFT founder. But there's some certain personality traits. You can't have immense drive and be an arrogant asshole, you know, because that's not going to work here. So it's, you know, but drive, if you have enough drive, you should be able to drive and consciousness will get you there. I think Drive and consciousness will make you a good NFT founder because if you have enough drive and you're conscious of, you know, the feedback, then you can adjust and you can pivot. But if you just have drive, some people just have drive and still run things like a dictatorship and it's their way or the highway, and that doesn't work in this space. It's an interesting thing, though, that you bring up, Nick, because I think it's a, it's a point where I think a lot of people think you can just drop an elite executive into this space and make them a CEO or a leader in NFTs. And I actually completely disagree. I think there's nothing that will prepare you for this. The, the thing that I think is my edge is the fact that I spent hundreds, if not probably a thousand hours, thousands of hours probably trading NFTs. That is why I think we have a little bit of a core competency is because I literally immersed myself for 10 months. Like all I was doing was NFTs and discords. I was like, even had a thing where I like crushed reselling Instagram posts because I like had a finger on the pulse. So like, I just like obsessed, my mind became obsessive with this space so that I, I had also had seen, I had friends who had started projects completely gutted and botched the whole thing. And I, I just like, I had such a good finger on the pulse as to what was working and what wasn't that I think 
is probably the best variable that I've had uh, or the best experience that I've had coming into this. And so from that perspective, I, I do think, though, that a lot of people misinterpret just bringing in a high-level, C-level executive from a big company and plopping them into you know, a leadership position in a T project as if that's going to change everything. Because I think we've seen that now a couple times where it actually doesn't. And you really just have to have a clear understanding of the space above all else to be successful here. Like you just have to have an unequivocally clear understanding. And, you know, if you're, you know, at Marvel and you ran Marvel for 10 years and now you come and run an NFT project to say that you're going to be successful is like not true because there's a lot of things at Marvel that you don't have to do or that you have to do in Web3 that you don't have to do at Marvel. And a lot of that comes with the communication and leadership and the understanding the wants and needs of the community, some of the things that we spoke about. So to answer your question, Nick, I think anyone can be a founder if they have drive. I think anybody can be a successful NFT founder if they have drive and consciousness. So consciousness being the ability to just understand humbly what's going on and being able to pivot and use your drive in places that are going to be beneficial. Uh, but I also think that there's a mis misunderstanding in the space that I think people just think, oh, well, he has experience, throw him in there. Now the project is going to moon and do well. I actually don't think so. Um, I think that that interpretation is misleading because I, I, I've even seen it hiring and recruiting. Like one of the things that's a huge thing for us when we're hiring is do you understand Web3 and NFTs? I mean, I've turned down some people that have amazing resumes with amazing skill sets that on paper you should have definitely hired, but they just had no understanding on the space. And so, you know, if half of the, half of what we're doing is, you know, for our community, for our holders, if you don't really understand that, then you don't understand half of the position. Regardless if you're animating or it, 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 you have to have a good finger on the pulse. And so looking to hire people that have that familiarity has been extremely difficult, but has kind of been like a deal breaker for me because I don't want to go explain, you know, the basics about what I can teach it, but it doesn't matter. You, you don't love it. You don't know it. You don't appreciate it. You haven't digested it and, and thought about it and fantasized about it. And so if you haven't done that, then what's the point you see that all the time. You just plot people with good resumes into, into these things, and it doesn't work. I mean, we've just seen it now. I mean, and, and you see it on just a staffing side as well. And so, sorry for the elongated answer. No, Nick, no, this is, this is a, that was a great answer. Question to you, if you don't mind answering it, where have you seen it not work? And I know that's putting you on the spot a little bit. I'm not trying to put you on the spot at all. Just was curious. Like, I think we're all a little curious of where, you know, we see it not working and it's easy to point fingers, of course, you know, like, Hey, you know, it didn't work here. It didn't work there. And it's okay if you don't answer. So what do you think? Yeah. I think my thing is like, I just want to see everyone win and I want to uplift people. And so I don't want to point out things where I think people are doing bad jobs. Yeah. I'm the same um, way. I'm the same way as you. So don't feel bad. Like at all. Like I'm literally, yeah. I'm literally the guy that go, everybody's like, let's make a list of like bad actors in the space. And I'm like, how about we make a list of just like good actors? Like here's a list of great people. Like, 
let's worry about that and like not make lists of like, Hey, don't work with these type of people. I mean, this isn't, we're not, you know, in the McCarthy era, you know, black, like going to blacklist people out of the space is like by, you know, trial by mob or whatever it is they have here. Um, I think it's really good to like, just literally highlight the big winners in the space as in like, here are the people that did it right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm totally aligned. And I think there's a, a short list of people who've done it right. Uh, and I, and, or I think there's a lot of people who are trying to do it right. Uh, but there's, you know, I think the space is so early. I think the only people that you can say did it right. is probably Yuga. Right. I mean, right. I think, no, I agree with that. I think, yeah, yeah. I think, I don't think anybody else has done it right truly because nobody else is Yuga. And so, uh, there, there's some people that I, that I really respect and admire in the space. You know, fortunately for me, I've been able to talk with every founder. So I have like a great finger on the pulse as to, you know, who I know is really impressive and who I think is really going to stand the test of time and others that are not. But unfortunately with great power comes great responsibility. And I would just shake things up way too much if I started throwing people under the bus. Yeah. I don't, I never think you should throw people under the bus, especially on my space. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that, like causing controversy and having their like people like come after me with thick pitchforks. So I appreciate you not answering that question. Just like I wouldn't either. Very smart move. Hey, uh, Nick's got another question. Go for it, Nick. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I have another question. Uh, so my question for you, Luca, would kind of be like, what do you think, you know, founders, there's been a lot of them have made mistakes. What do you think kind of would have, I guess, help them not make that mistake? Like, should they have worked at a NFT project before that? Should they have, you know, had a mentor who was a founder? Like, what do you think could have really taught someone how to great, to be a great NFT founder? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm a huge advocate of playing a role or being a cog a key cog in something, but not being the actual machine to garner some experience. Like this is really, really important. And so that would kind of be my ultimate recommendation is if you enjoy this space and you want to build in this space, like have a pretty good understanding as to like what that means and what that entails. Right? Like I was thankful enough I, had, I did this thing where I bought like an absorbent, you'll appreciate this, Lucas, but I bought like a ton of Instagram posts. I saw like the writing on the wall. I saw just like, I, I saw what people were doing with some of these Instagram pages. I didn't own any Instagram pages, but I basically said, I'm going to gatekeep all of these Instagram posts. And if you want to promote something on these Instagram pages, you have to go to through me. Now at the time, there was a lot of NFT projects going to these pages and they were paying exorbitant amounts of money. So I was buying, you know, a post for five grand. I was reselling it for 25,000. Oh, it was going like hot. That is great. Like hot. That is amazing arbitrage right there. I love it. Yeah, no, it, it, it was a complete money printer. But I was able to talk to a lot of founders, people who were starting, got a lot of ideas. I, I like understood a full scope. I was seeing how they were doing their marketing. I'd go into their Discord. I would, I would like really have like a super clear understanding at the time, like people like Prime Ape and Hate Beast and things like that had purchased from me. And so like I knew, like had conversations with these guys. Like I knew exactly what they were doing, how they were doing it. I paid attention. I saw where things went wrong. And so in some capacity, I was a little bit of a cog, right? Like I, I, I had a finger on the pulse in some sort of fashion. 
And so I think, again, that just led me to understanding, like I had complete understanding as to what made these projects go from 0.5 ETH mint to 10 ETH floor and then all the way back down because there was a little bit of a personal touch there. Like I, I, I had known through the interactions with these founders exactly like what their thought processes were, where I felt like they were falling short. And so I highly recommend trying to play or be a cog in, in a machine before you actually decide to build and become the machine yourself. I mean, you need to. I, this space is too brutal to not because it's like one move can be fatal for not only yourself, but your community. You have to understand like when you mint a project, you have a responsibility, right? A lot of people don't really understand that. Like you don't even have a responsibility as much to yourself and your reputation, but you have a responsibility to the people who purchase that. And a majority of people don't really understand or grasp that responsibility. And that responsibility is not to be neglected. And, you know, you have an ability to do something really special or do something really harmful. I think one of the most beautiful things that really gives me purpose in Pudgy Penguins is the fact that if I do my job, if I do what I need to do, then I can impact 5,000 holders in a really positive way. And I could probably change some of their lives if I do it. Like if I turn the Pudgy Penguin and make the Pudgy Penguin brand as big as Pokemon and our Pudgy Penguin NFTs are our first editions, I mean, that's a floor price of millions of dollars. Like imagine if I can do that for people. Like it's a mechanism to really help people in a way that we honestly haven't seen before. But it's also on the flip side, right? You know, some people don't have $200 to mint something. And if they do, maybe it's the extra money on their paycheck. And if you just, and this space is so amazing and it's so much of the future that you want to give them a good experience, you don't want to take that responsibility and ruin it for them because you just ruined their whole lifetime value over the course of how many years they, they could have spent. It's like if pudgy penguins would have flopped and would have never had its run, like maybe I don't buy millions of dollars of PFP NFTs, right? And think about that chain reaction. It's because pudgy did so well that I was so excited about the space and that the reason why I'm here today, right? Like everything has a chain reaction and just people just need to understand there's a responsibility there. And it's something that I feel like, you know, you have to understand on both sides. And if you do it right, right, it's one of those mechanisms where, you know, when Pudgy Penguins has a hundred ETH floor price, like I will have a community, you know, loyal to the brand, the likes of which... <laughs> Only a handful of brands in the world have, right? Yeah. Like a board ape, board ape has shown that. You know what I mean? Board ape has made it very clear that if you can do that for them, they will they will pay back dividends the likes of which you can't even imagine. And so it's it's an opportunity to really do something special in the world. And it's 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 bigger than just drawings and illustrations. It's responsibility. And I think this is uh, it's really important. You just have to understand that. When you dive in, you know, you have to make sure that you understand the scope of that responsibility. So that would be my take. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. There's no doubt about it. And I, I definitely agree. Like, I mean, any kind of uh, business I've ever run in my lifetime, I have not done. I've not just like hopped in and been like, OK, I'm just going to figure this out as I go. I was a you know, I had to learn and become an expert like in the field of X, right? First, I had to become an expert in the field of analytics. Then I had to be an expert in the field of like 
email marketing and displays, you know, display ads and stuff like that. I mean, I ran an entire um, ad net, display ad network at one point. So there's all these tools along the way give you this like expertise and then you can jump in. And I totally agree with what you said about like being in NFTs and like being in like a trader actively, like exactly what I was like last week of April of 2021, I've been in, been into NFTs, like trading, like super actively. And we're talking like at least 10 hours on spaces, like, you know, just like chatting with, with friends, you know, having alpha spaces where we're like deciding on what to like make really bad decisions on investing in. But during the bull market, you know, it was just so, it was just such an easy ROI that, you know, almost everything you minted, almost everything you bought on the secondary was like double, in uh, you know, tripling in price at least. And then some, in some cases within a week, like you were talking about, it was like a 10 X. And there were a couple of times where, you know, obviously I took advantage of that as well. So it's, it's definitely a, a lot of good stuff there. I just never thought to like go down and like buy a project, which actually makes so much sense to do now that you did it. But it's just, did you have a lot of people like push back at you at first? Like, Hey man, that's crazy. Why are we buying this, this collection when we could just go and buy, like make our own? Did anybody ever say that to you? Like, hey, why don't we just make our own, start from scratch? Because there's like a lot of bad taste in these people's mouths. Yeah, but there's something about pudgy penguins that there's a magic that like, I didn't really think of it at the time, but I think one of the superpowers that we have with the community is that we've done nothing but give and we've never taken. And I want to keep that narrative for as long as I possibly can until it's the point where there's the floor price is so high and the inbound is so high that there's no, like you, you have to grow the ecosystem and then do that. But it, it turned out to be a superpower because it's one of those things that I, I actually didn't really realize until afterwards, but it's kind of hard to bully. Cause like one of the cons in this space is just people are really mean. Right. So it's hard to bully somebody if oh, they yeah. never took them from you. You <laughs> yeah, know, it's yeah. like, how can you bully me if, or like, you know, really just lay into me if all I've done is given to you? They can find a way, to... Luca. They can find a way. Trust me. I've oh no, they it. they can, they can. <laughs> but it. like, it's comparative. Comparatively, it's like okay, there's there's some amount of respect here, right? That like, hey, I, I'm doing my best to give to you, you know, and, and I'm not asking for anything in return. And, yeah. and yep. that's a superpower and one of our edges that I think we're probably the only project that really has that edge, right? When you think about it, um, maybe with the exception of Freemints, somebody that I really respect is the Killer Bears team because they're kind of in this line. But there, there's, there's a really easy way to galvanize when all you've done is give and you've never taken. Um, and the next one is, you know, with Pudgy Penguins, I mean, I, I, just, I just don't even, I, I still am bamboozled. I will be bamboozled until until the end of time, how one of these major players with all this money didn't think about scooping it up because it's just too magical. It's too historically significant. The community is too strong, too many builders, too many affluent members who are like the creme de la creme of crypto and NFTs. And like, I bought that for two and a half million bucks. I mean, that it, it's it, it, for what the LTV is gauged in the space, like per the valuations that venture has kind of gained. Like, I mean, I, I, almost, the thing is for me is on paper, Lucas, and I know you'll respect this and I know you'll understand this. Like I bought it for two and a half. And the second I bought it, I felt like I made 20 million bucks nice. because I thought I, it was, <laughs> it was no way that it was two and a half million dollars. 
Right. You know, yeah. like there's no way in, in heck, like there's, there's no way that you could even justify that the business had netted $7 million in five months up until when I bought it or six months netted 7 million bucks and I bought it for two and a half. I mean, it's like, it's like a, it's a negative multiple, my God. And so like, I felt like the, the, the moment I bought it, I was like, I already, I, on paper, I made 20 million bucks and <laughs> you know, a majority of net worths today are quantified by your on paper status. Right. So it's like, on paper, I thought I was like, dude, the second I bought it, it's immensely more valuable afterwards. All I got to do is, you know, build that foundation and grow it and take it to where I needed it to be. Um, now, obviously, the vision is how do you build a multi-billion dollar business? Um, but, you know, at its core, dude, I mean, I technically minted it in the most pure way possible. I don't think the world has seen a more pure of a, of a mint in this space, truthfully. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. For a hundred percent. So I got Nick again asking another question. He is really inquisitive. He is really inquisitive. I like this, Nick. Go for it, buddy. <laughs> okay, this is my last question. I, I promise. I promise. I think. <laughs> uh, and the the reason why I ask so many questions, especially to Lucas, because he's just he's someone, especially in the space, who I look up to as a founder. Um, I just think he's done a great job, honestly, with pudgies and just overall. Uh, I'm curious to know, because I know a little bit about your background, Luca, on why you kind of came out of gel blasters and came into the NFT space and just kind of like e-com in general, because I know you were doing great there. So what did you see in the NFT space that was really missing that just took you from, you know, making that and just coming to the NFT space to take a gamble like you did. I just believed so much this was the future. And I felt like the bar was so low that there was a whole sub-segment and a whole vertical that nobody was paying attention to. And I thought to myself, like, I believe this is a $100 billion a year business in five to 10 years. And if I can capture 5% of that, then that yields to me a greater upside than what I'm currently doing. And so I also thought about it like gel blaster, I did what I needed to do, which is make it go viral and put it into that hyper growth parabolic curve. And, you know, I was CMO of gel blaster, co-founder and CMO. And when I was, you know, like the, the CMO role went from viral growth marketing to a majority of your revenues from Walmart and Target and Best Buy and Costco and all these major big box, the marketing landscape shifts. Viral growth marketing and then Walmart marketing are two different types of marketing. You know, one I think requires a really unique skill set, which is what I have, or I think I have, um, or I actually have. Uh, and then the other is more of like a maintenance, very straightforward ESPN commercials, NASCAR sponsorships, things like that. And so I had my equity in Gel Blaster. I knew if I stepped down that nothing would be affected negatively, maybe even positively, because I wasn't passionate about ESPN commercials, right? Or like, you know, sponsoring, you know, NASCAR and, you know, derby races and stuff like that. And I also felt like this was just a unique opportunity to do something that, you know, in my mind, this might sound a little ridiculous. So, you know, bear with me, but I've always looked up to like a Steve Jobs and like, you know, people like the really great entrepreneurs. And one thing that I was never had a high competency in was technology. Like it's not something I'm not a good technology builder, but I found the right CTO. I 
found the right group of people. And I just thought to myself, like, this is a moment to be at the forefront of a space that I think is going to be the future. And thankfully, the bar is incredibly low. And like, the bar is not high. And so I feel like if we came in with our core competencies and did our vertical and our angle to this business, it's an angle and a vertical that nobody's looking at, which to me is the highest upside angle, which is, you know, PFP NFTs are the next great IP companies the world's ever seen. And, you know, based on that thesis, I just gauged the risk reward. I had what I had in Gel Blaster. I knew if I stepped down, they wouldn't be incredibly hurt by it. It already superseded that point where the product is so good. The UGC is so good. It just, you know, the more units you sell, the more Walmarts you're in, like the more it's just going to keep going viral because that's the nature of the product. And um, I just thought to myself, like, this is the time to get into an industry and start a legacy that I've always dreamt about since I was 10 years old. Like, and, and that's kind of like how it all came to be. And so my gut told me to get it and we got it and we've been grinding ever since. Huge risk though. I mean, I have to admit, if you already have a company that's doing really, really well and don't get me wrong, I get why you did it because obviously pivoting into technology, it's technology is infinitely scalable. You know, once you build it once you can literally sell that same technology a thousand, 2000, 10,000 times, like any kind of like software as a service solution, like um, solution that's out there. So in this case, what you're talking about makes a lot of sense in like pivoting to something in your career that that's infinitely scalable um, is actually a really smart move. Take your money and be able to like use it as a utility to build something that will make you even like way more money and it's way more scalable with less people eventually, of course, because software is never completely built. Like you are, if you're in the software game, you know that you just keep building and building and iterating and iterating, adding features, taking away features, things that people use, things that people don't use. So definitely a smart move. I think it's a smart move on my, on your, from my standpoint to yours for sure. Cause CPG eventually, you know, gets not to say you couldn't be unbelievably wildly successful at that too for like a very long time. Cause clearly you're doing a great job, you know, four out of five, like those are wins and that's great. Um, but eventually it does get a little crowded and everybody tries to do what you're doing. And I don't know, man, software is just sexier. Um, in a lot of cases, although I, I've worked in a lot of segments of business that what people wouldn't classify as sexy, like ad tech or like ed tech or, you know, like FinTech, any of these categories I've worked in before, like obviously the entertainment stuff I've done and the gaming stuff I've done is pretty cool. But at the end of the day, what, what really makes or breaks you is learning the numbers. And I didn't learn, you know, I didn't learn the numbers doing like video games. I didn't learn the numbers doing, you know, marketing for Sony pictures. I did, I learned the analytics by working at startups that, you know, did really, really, really well. And once you learn the analytics, you realize you then have the tools to operate any business, scale any business once you understand how to look at the numbers and then be able to take actionable steps from those numbers to actually improve the business. So I can't stress enough how analytic, like analytics will change your life. If you don't know them, go and learn it. Like this, that's something you should definitely learn. And Luca definitely understands it clearly. So analytics is where it's at, guys. Like go and try and learn that stuff as quickly as possible and understand like, how these analytics like shape your business. And then when you have that, you can make decisions, really smart decisions to like hyper growth of business. 
um, to make business development deals and partnerships. There's so many things you can do once you understand the numbers and they give you goals. So that's really cool. Um, I think that's it for now. Luca, thanks for showing up today, my man. It's uh, I greatly appreciate it. Oh, Facero and Miss Teen have questions. Now you raise your hands. All right, let's go. I'm going to let ladies go first, Facero. Um, go ahead, Miss Teen. Thanks, Lucas. You're welcome. I apologize. I didn't know like when the Q&A was supposed to be. That's why I didn't raise my hand. I didn't want to yeah, interrupt or anything like that. But sure. thank you again sure. for having me. Um, nice to meet you, Luca. I just wanted to ask because I do see that uh, when you were acquiring Pudgy Penguins, it was in the bidding war in early 2021. That's when NFTs were hot, hot. And, you know, we had an unexpected bear market. People didn't expect it to go this way. Did you, ex, you know, prepare for a bear market? How have you been handling it from like, I guess, a marketing point of view? And even, you know, there it wasn't a lot of liquidity in the market for a little while. And NFTs are coming back now. But how have you prepared for that bear market? Did you expect it? Yeah. So, you know, entrepreneurship rule number one is be able to control your own destiny. So at its core, NFT royalties are subject to variables you can't control. I.e., one month, Pudgy Penguins will make $500,000 in royalties, and the next month, they'll make $30,000. But it won't be my fault. It'll be because FTX decided to steal everyone's money, and Ethereum took a 50% haircut. And so I knew this coming into this business. And so one of the first things that we did was start to develop this toy and this collectible line. Um, But unfortunately, the nature of that stuff just takes time. I mean... Anybody that can ship a toy line or a collectible line from inception to consumer in less than 12 months, reach out to me because it's like almost impossible, right? To like do it right at the highest level just because of the nature of time, right? Like just molds in and of itself take six to eight weeks. You might be able to push that to four weeks, you know, like putting things on a boat, right? You're not going to put these in the air because then you're going to lose all your margin, Putting these things on a boat, you know, take eight to 10 weeks, depending on the situation with the ports. So by nature, things just take time to do that. And so I had factored in worst case scenarios and boy, oh boy, was I wrong. I totally admit, And I had fully expected that for 12 months, our main revenue stream would be royalties. And so when a month after I purchased it, the whole market goes completely belly up. It was really tough. Because I think the most incredible thing about our turnaround and this comeback story, the thing that I'm most proud about is that we did this with no mint funds and with no money. Like we bought the business with zero dollars in the bank. And so the fact that we were able to accomplish everything that we were able to accomplish, you know, to me, I really have a high bar. I think we could do a lot better. But if you look at it from the lens of like, hey, we had no money, then I think that gives an even more interesting perspective, figuring that we were able to probably be one of the highest performing NFTs and probably one of the fastest growing brands in NFT with exponentially less resources than everyone else. And that's really what I'm most proud about. But I will tell you, speaking openly, Miss Team, I was really worried for a moment. And so I was ready to like deploy capital. I was ready to double down. Uh, but I was worried. I, I, I was, there were, there was a couple months during the summer where I thought to myself like, oh shit, we were in for a really brutal ride. And again, it just comes back to the community, dude. Like they rallied behind, they engaged, they posted the gifts, 
they posted the tweets, they had conviction in me, they had conviction in the team. And that's what eventually led to us, you know, going on this run and being here today. But, you know, in totality, was I scared? I, I didn't forecast it to get that bad. I mean, there was like two months where we made like 15 and 20 grand, like my burn, the C, our, our C-level team doesn't pay themselves. So we all don't pay ourselves, but we still have employees. Like our burn is more like exponentially more than that. And we didn't have anything in the bank. It was, it was, a, it was a scary moment to say the least, but you know, let's say we would have went to zero. I would have put more money into it and we committed like this was, you know, failure is not an option here. And so it was, it was worrisome. I actually am super grateful for it because it really tested everybody on the team. Like it, it really showed me who was made of what and who really believed and had an unequivocal belief regardless of floor price and regardless of the royalties that we were making. Because the royalty side of the business is an extremely easy business. I mean, in a bull market, Pudgy Penguins makes a million dollars in royalties in, in, on a bad month, you know? And so, like... It, it was a fascinating experience, to say the least. It's one I'm super grateful for. It's one that humbled us. I don't think we're here today without that. And it's one that I think, you know, really, even though we already had an emphasis on it from day one, it really, like, made us roll up our sleeves and be like, okay, like, you know, timeline is 12 to 18 months. Like, let's try to accelerate this. You know what I mean? Let's try to make it nine. Because the sooner we get the product, the sooner we can do what we know how to do best. We have experience in doing and moving product. This is what we know how to do. Really not scared about that. But there was definitely a moment where I was doing some accounting and getting ready to you know, put money into the bank account to save this because it wasn't looking pretty. And so it, 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 was, a, it was a moment that I'll never forget. And we probably go back to a moment like that at some point uh, before the next bull run. So we'll see. Yeah, it's the struggles, though, that keep you going, right? So at the end of the day, it's kind of a good thing. Although, obviously, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. I think your uh, your struggle there kind of like gave you kind of like, hey, you know what? If I can make it through this, I can make it through another one of these. So, yeah. Not the, Thank not you the worst. for your honesty, Luca. Yeah. All right, Fisero, go for it, my man. Thanks for letting me up, Lucas. Uh, Luca, I just want to say hi. And uh, I, I, there's only a handful of people that I admire in the space, and you are top of the list. So uh, it's been great hearing what you've been saying about the project and how you've come along. Uh, I really uh, respect and admire that. Um, but I'm very interested in how you see the next 12, 24 months for the space, um, and maybe Pudgy Penguins. And... The, there are projects out there that have potential, but obviously they either don't have the knowledge of running a successful business like you do. Um, do you think there's going to be acquisitions come in and maybe uh, taken into the Pudgy Penguins ecosystem? Yeah, I think, you know, my focus has to be 100% Pudgies until the ecosystem, until it's at a place where, Holders have so much trust and belief in me that they understand that to build a really true great IP company, you need other characters. But I haven't accomplished what I needed to accomplish yet with Pudgy, so I can't even think about that. But there will be a moment in time, you know, 
the company that holds Pudgy Penguins is called the Igloo Company, and it's a take on the Walt Disney Company. Because the plan for multiple IPs is definitely in the plan. But you can't have multiple IPs if you don't have your Mickey Mouse. And Pudgy Penguins is our Mickey Mouse. And it's the creme de la creme. It's the center of the universe, right? I think that's key. But there definitely needs to be other characters as we expand. But that cannot be at a detriment to the community. It has to be a net positive. So everything you do has to be a net positive. If I look at the space in general over the next 12 to 24 months, I, uh, you know, I have an interesting thesis, and this, this is actually some alpha for the founders. Um, in regards to Pudgy Penguins, I told the team this, uh, and I think this, this kind of translates. We made this, I made this decision in August. I basically thought about it because we were budgeting. We were budgeting hard. And I talked to our CTO, Lorenzo, who's pretty much our president, but because he's just so, he's an incredible entrepreneur but he's like incredibly tech savvy. And so he leads the charge there. But I basically said, Lorenzo, we're budgeting to the point where we're creating 24 months runway, which is the fiscally responsible thing to do, right? It's what you should do, right? But I think we lose attention in the next 24 months and we lose the community if we stick to this budget plan. And so I said, Lorenzo, I rather have a brand, a real brand with real product market fit and a community that's passionate and fervent about being a part of it and have no money than have a enough runway for 24 months, but a lame brand with no product market fit and a dead community. And so my thing is, is I think the next 12 to 24 months, I think at least the next 12 months, I think this is a fake out. I think we get faked out here. Uh, again, you know, how that translates to the NFT market, I don't know. You know, I think from a macro market, I think it's a fake out. I think Pudgy Penguins has done well in a bear market, so I'm not really too worried. I think we keep doing our thing. But one thing that I will make sure of is that we're the group doing the most, with the exception of, you know, some groups that are just so well capitalized that can really deliver a lot of output. But I want to be in the top three projects that are delivering the most to their community and to their holders, whether that's through content, whether that's through tech, whether that's through product, whether that's through a, a plethora of other ways to accrue value back to them. Like that is really important to me. And, and to me, I actually love the bear market because this is where I can get aggressive and this is where everyone else is scared. I mean, I, I smelled it in the summer. I like literally was talking to all the founders and it, it was, this was a part of the conversation I had with Lorenzo. I said, this is the time. This is the time where we spend and we don't be frugal. And if we run out of money, we run out of money. I'll bankroll this thing until Valhalla. Like I don't care, right? I'm already two and a half million dollars in. So I, I'll put another two and a half if that's what it takes. Like there's no situation where we run out of money, but this is not the time to be timid and to pull back on all the resources. This is the time where everybody's scared. And everybody's quiet. And if you actually look at how that translated, that decision was made in August. First day of August. I remember it vividly. And then what happens two weeks later? We, we have the 400 ETH sale. We finally make that move. We break out in a really big and meaningful way. And then, you know, it's kind of dictated the direction of Pudgy Penguins ever since. You know, but for me, like, I think we at least have another 12 months of pain on a macro scale, I just think 
you know, none of the answer, none of the questions have been answered in regards to inflation, macroeconomics, right? And so I think there's something there. I think in 2024, 2025, we all come back and we, we kick off the super cycle and we're all having a great time in which I will be exponentially more prepared than most. Uh, and so a lot of the things, I won't give away some of the secret sauce. You know, Lucas, I could tell you some of the things that we're doing from a strategy standpoint, I think would blow your mind because it's like something that only the elite of the elite could probably see through. But like I'm laying the ground works for that moment. And uh, this is where I'm being aggressive. Like this is where I want to be the loudest founder in the room. I want to have the loudest community. I want to give them the ammo to be loud, right? I want to give them the growth to champion the brand, the progress, the collaborations. That's my job. And while everyone's scared counting the runway, I won't have that problem. And what I've known is liquidity is low, but there's enough liquidity to still, you know, cover your burn and to make some if you can garner the attention. It's really the key. So I can agree with that more, by the way, my man, like what you just said, there's so many brands back in the uh, right, right as the bubble burst in like 2000, 2001. And there are a lot of brands that did the same thing again in 2008. They pulled back on all their marketing spend. They think that's the ultimate thing. Like that's the trigger. Everybody pulls back on like instantly when a market starts to get hard. And I actually think you should double and quadruple down on marketing during those time periods because that's when everybody else is pulling back. That's when you can steal market share and become number one. And everybody like has been trained with this old mentality from the seventies of like cut the most expensive stuff from the PL, Right. And at the end of the day, that math works out in a big publicly traded, publicly traded company, but it doesn't work with a business that's like trying to grab market share and trying to fight with, you know, basically fight for like you, you just said attention in a space when everybody else pulls back and the market's bad. That's when you, Again, you double and triple, quadruple down on marketing. And, uh, you know, I think that's a sure way of winning because we've seen brands come out of nowhere like and win. A perfect example is Liquid Death. That water, like there's a whole bunch of brands that were out there and they pulled back on all their marketing spend around the same time and Liquid Death doubled down, tripled down on their marketing during that time period. And now look, Liquid Death is everywhere. You think it was like just an overnight kind of a thing, but it wasn't. They made the smart decision to just go, hey, we're not going to do what everybody else does. We're not pulling back our spend. This is the time to like basically go in and own the space. Make us, put us everywhere because everything's cheaper then too. No one's spending any money. So you get things cheaper. You get better get better rates on placements and all sorts of things that you never would have gotten because nobody's really doing anything anymore. And I totally agree with you, Luca. That was a very sharp, smart insight that you have to, people should really understand in the space is that reading business books will tell you, you know, pull back when the market's tough so you can actually weather a storm. If you want to win on the other side of that storm, you don't pull back. You cut in certain in certain areas, which which are you know a little bit bloated, but never in marketing, never in like trying to get PR and everything out there, never battling. If you're cutting a, like analytics for like attention analytics, and you're cutting for that stuff, you're making the uh, the wrong decision in a market like this. So I agree with you, Luca, hundred percent. Yeah, and I this is why Lucas. Every time you ask me to be on your space, I will join. 
Nice, so. dude. I appreciate that, dude. Let me see if we have any more questions real quick. You're a, man. I, we, we both live in LA. We got to hang out. P.S. Um, so let's see here. Anybody else have any questions up here? If not, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, start winding down the space real quick. No, no, no more questions. No more questions. All right. Cool. So Luca, thanks for coming on my man. This is big. I will absolutely invite you onto the space again. I look forward to having you back on and uh, I want to chat in the DMS a little bit about what you guys are actually doing. Obviously I'll keep it on the DL. I won't tell anybody, but I'm very interested in like some of the stuff you're, you guys are doing. And like I said, we got to meet up one of these days. I am having a, a, a meetup here Thursday. Um, so if you're, if you're around, let me know. Um, I do events in LA as well. So Looking forward to it. If you can make it, if not, no worries. Um, and thanks everybody for showing up today. It was a really big deal. You heard some major alpha coming from Luca. Um, I'm even more bullish on pudgy penguins now. So I am, I am like just crazy enthused about the project. If you want to go check it out, check it out for sure. This is not financial advice, of course, but you got a really great founder up here who's completely open to communicating and like sharing what he, what he's learned. And coming from CPG to the NFT space and saying, like, what's the most successful stuff? So don't forget, I have a show every single day. Tomorrow's Lazy Lions. So at 5 p.m. tomorrow, we're going to be talking with the founders of Lazy Lions. That was my one of my first interviews I ever did back in, like, I think it was August of 2021. And we're going to hear how they're, like, what, what's going on with Lazy Lions tomorrow. But, man, Luca, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the audience for, for listening and the great questions by Miss Teen and also by Nick Smalls and of course Vicero. You guys rock. Hey Luca, what, what any last words for the uh, community here? Uh, thank you guys for tuning in as usual, and uh, thank you Lucas for being an amazing host. Oh, I appreciate one of the few that I have an absolute smile on my face being having this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's a huge compliment coming from you, my man. So look forward to like I said, meeting in real life and also uh, you know doing more of these spaces. So. Thanks again. And that is the end of the daily buzz for today. Thanks everybody for tuning in. You all rock. We couldn't be here without you. And again, thanks to Luca for coming up and sharing all of his wisdom. I'm super impressed. And like I said, I can't wait to like put a face to the name in real life. And with that said, see you guys tomorrow. Daily buzz. A scream that comes a thousand miles. It might be yours, it might be mine.